Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. As the British government steps up its preparations for a no-deal Brexit, is the scenario that almost nobody wants about to become the reality that everybody ends up with? We'll be getting the latest on this story from our London editor, Dennis Staunton. I'll also be talking to Daniel McLaughlin in Budapest about the ongoing protests there against the increasingly autocratic rule of Prime Minister Viktor Orban. But it's Brexit first, and Dennis Staunton is on the line from London. Um, Dennis, I, I guess the headline news from this story on Monday was Jeremy Corbyn's decision to table a no-confidence motion in Prime Minister Theresa May. Can, can we just deal with that first? What, what's the significance of that move by Corbyn? It's not really significant in itself, in that it, uh, it's not a vote of confidence, of no confidence in the government, just in Theresa May. So it's like a kind of a, a motion of censure. And it has no uh, constitutional significance. It can't bring down the government. It really can't do anything. And not only that, but the government is not obliged to give it uh, parliamentary time. And so uh, so uh, as a result of that, the government has said, well, we're not going to bother. And more or less has taunted Jeremy Corbyn and suggested that if he really wants to have a serious confidence vote, why doesn't he have uh, a vote of no confidence in the government? And, of course, the reason that he won't have a vote of no confidence in the government is, number one, that uh, he won't win it because both the Conservative Brexiteers and the DUP have said that they would vote with the government. But also, uh, if uh, he does actually have a vote of no confidence and it fails, that will mean he's failed to trigger a general election. And according to the policy adopted by the Labour Party on Brexit at their party conference in October, uh, if they fail to get a general election, they then have to look at other options, including a second referendum. And Jeremy Corbyn is not quite ready to bring Labour around to a position of advocating uh, a second referendum on Brexit. And in, in, in any case, the motion that he has tabled, will it even take place? Will a vote even take place? Probably not. He doesn't have control. If, if you uh, have, you know, if you table a motion of confidence in the government, then uh, that has to get priority in terms of parliamentary time. But if it's uh, a kind of a fairly trivial one, like a motion of no confidence in the prime minister, which has no real effect, then the government can just fit it in whenever it likes, or it goes, you know, it can go the next day that the opposition has uh, has parliamentary time allocated to it. But given that Parliament rises on Thursday until the seventh of January. It looks like uh, it probably won't happen this week anyway. And so when it does come back on the 7th of January, Theresa May has now said that the vote, the meaningful vote on her deal with the with the EU will take place the following week on January 14th. And uh, there was a lot of happiness around, unhappiness, I should say, around the House of Commons on Monday, not just among the Labour Party, but also among some Tory MPs about the length of time that's now going to pass before this vote takes place. Is there anything they can do about it? Will, can anything happen this week to speed up the process? Or is that now set in stone January 14th that week? That is uh, really set in stone. So she has, uh, Theresa May has decided she will bring it back. They will have five more days of debate on it. They they already had three out of the five that were planned. They'll have another five and uh, starting in the week of the 7th of January. And then in the week of the 14th of January, they will have a vote. Now, the curious thing is that here at Westminster this morning, there is uh, a bit of a pep in the step of the government because you've had uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg coming out and saying, uh, you know, I now have full confidence in the prime minister and I mean that from the bottom of my heart, despite the fact that 
after uh, she won the vote of confidence uh, in her leadership of the Conservative Party last Wednesday. He was out on Wednesday and on Thursday saying she ought to still resign. But he's changed his tune now. And he says it's just that he accepts that uh, his side lost and you've got to go with it. And likewise, the DUP are sounding rather more friendly towards the government. And the reports are that their meetings with the government are a bit more friendly. And there's even some speculation among friends of the uh, of Mrs. May that actually she has a chance of getting this vote through in January, that somehow she will get some kind of concessions on the backstop and that this will be enough in terms of reassurances to persuade the Brexiteers and the DUP to vote in favour of uh, her Brexit deal. And the and, and so the noises there are that somehow they kind of they'd like an excuse to vote for it. Now the problem with this is that this is exactly the opposite of what people in Brussels say. And if you talk to people in Brussels, they'll say that last week at the disastrous summit on Thursday night uh, in Brussels, Theresa May effectively wrecked any chance that she had of getting any more concessions on the backstop before any vote takes place. There are no negotiations going on this week between the UK and the European Union, uh, not even at the most technical level. And there is no enthusiasm on the European side to do anything at all uh, before Theresa May has her vote. So it looks like she could be going into this uh, vote on the week of the 14th of January without having uh, any further assurances about the nature of the backstop than she got last week, which uh, was regarded in Westminster as pretty small beer. So there's a kind of a dissonance between uh, how you know the the sudden burst of optimism here at Westminster and the gloom that is surrounding Brussels. And is it possible that the other reason Jacob Rees-Mogg and, and his mates seem happier is because the later this goes and the later this vote takes place, the more likely we are um, heading into a, a no-deal Brexit scenario. And they're the only group really that, that don't seem kind of terribly unhappy about this prospect. Yes, I think that is, uh, it's, you know, certainly that's a, a very plausible explanation that, uh, you know, the longer you leave this, uh, the more other options die away. So, uh, for example, the whole idea of a Norway style or Norway plus uh, option where Britain would remain in the single market and the customs union, support for that seems to be evaporating. It's also probably once you get towards the end of January, too late for anybody else to say, I, I, you know, I'll go and negotiate a better version of Theresa May's deal. And so then you're going to be left with two options, really, which would be to uh, have no deal uh, or to try to have a second referendum. And since no deal is the default, uh, if nothing happens, Britain, according to the Article 50, it leaves the European Union on the 29th of March 2019. Some of the Brexiteers do think that if they, uh, you know, uh, keep uh, the clock going, play down the clock, is that what you call it? If they if they do that, then, um, you know, that uh, they'll eventually run out of time and you'll just end up in a no-deal Brexit, which they're very relaxed about. And on the question of a no-deal Brexit, that was being discussed uh, by the Cabinet today at its meeting on Tuesday at its weekly meeting. What do we know about what kind of preparations are now that they're bringing forward? Well, the cabinet meeting overran, so uh, it's uh, just before I spoke to you, it was, they were still meeting. They were talking really about whether, uh, you know, how how big to go on the no deal preparations, and one of the options was to uh, to to tell 
six million businesses that they need to start doing certain things to prepare if they export or if they trade with Europe. So they're going to have to get certain kinds of licenses and they're going to have to register themselves in a certain way. So it's really a question of, you know, do you do you uh, do all of that? And, you know, how big do you go in terms of uh, suggesting that this is serious? We're heading for a no deal Brexit and that that's the basis of your planning from now on. And I think there was quite a lot of pressure on the prime minister to go for that sort of option, because that does tend to keep Brexiteers happy. One of their complaints is that they say that one of the reasons that Theresa May has been in a poor position to negotiate with the European Union is because she didn't start planning for a no deal early enough. And so the threat of leaving without a deal seemed uh, to lose its uh, resonance because the Europeans looked at the fact that Britain hadn't really prepared and said, you're never going to walk away from this because you will never risk no deal. And so uh, the more preparation that they do for this uh, before Christmas, the more they'll keep the Brexiteers happy. And it was likely to be an interesting cabinet meeting for other reasons, Dennis. I mean, another remarkable thing on Monday was the number of cabinet ministers who came out and sort of openly talked about other options apart from Mrs May's deal. Does she even have majority support within the cabinet now for her deal? Well, as you say, quite a few of them have been, although they're all formally in support of her deal, uh, quite a number of cabinet ministers have been openly talking about what happens if it doesn't succeed, which is not the kind of thing you normally do before something has totally failed. And so uh, a number of them, particularly on the Remain side, have been looking at the idea of having what they call indicative votes in the House of Commons, so that if uh, Mrs. May's deal doesn't win a majority, that then the House of Commons would vote on a series of options. And uh, and you'd have a free vote, so uh, they wouldn't be bound by the whips. And you get a sense of, of where the House was. And so, they, you know, you might get a majority for no deal or for, uh, the, or for a second referendum or for Norway or, or for Norway whatever it is. Or something, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But the problem is that, you know, the, the last time they did this was in 2003, when Tony Blair was trying to work out what to do about reforming the House of Lords. And a committee came up with seven options. And the House of Commons voted on the seven options and didn't approve any of them. So they rejected all of the options. And there's a good chance that they would do the same this time round. Uh, you know, but still, what I think that the remainers in the cabinet feel is that if you start to introduce the prospect of these other options, including a second referendum, that eventually people, you know, a majority could form in favour of a second referendum and that you might even be able to persuade Theresa May to have a second referendum, although she has been more and more outspoken in her opposition to it so far. So that's on the Remain side. And then on the Brexity side of the cabinet, they have been looking at what they call a managed no deal. And this is the idea that uh, you would reject the withdrawal agreement, but that instead of paying 40 billion to the European Union, that Britain would pay 20 billion and in return would get the two-year transition period and certain side deals on things like financial services. Now, the Europeans say this is out of the question. Uh, it's a ridiculous idea and they've rejected it completely. But still, it's one of the notions that's going around. One of the ideas that's floating around Westminster this week uh, in terms of the vote on Theresa May's deal is that there could be an amendment which would suggest that Parliament would have a kind of sunset clause, rather in the way that the United States Congress votes every year on raising the debt ceiling. There's always a row about it, but they always vote in favour of it in the end because the alternative is so unthinkable. That Parliament would have a vote every year on extending the backstop, and Parliament would always 
complain about it, but would always vote to extend it because the alternative would be no trading relations with Europe. And the idea would be that you would see if you got a majority for that. And if she got a majority for that, Theresa May could then go back to Brussels and say, look, if you let me do this, and if you say, that, uh, if you agree that that does not mean that I'm not properly ratifying the treaty, then uh, then I can get this thing through and we don't have to reopen the withdrawal agreement. Uh, I don't know how the Europeans would respond to something like that, but these are the kind of ideas yeah. that are going around. Uh, if you're back as, with a sunset clause, you're almost back to the backstop no longer being a backstop. Um, except mm. that it would be a sort of a unilateral sort of parliamentary promise in a, in a way that it would be uh, so I mean I'm not sure exactly how they would uh, you know uh, how they would do it. would it be simply a promise from the government to the parliament that it would respect parliament's vote or would it be uh, a, a somehow uh, written in or attached to the withdrawal agreement but it's just the idea that somehow that you would have this uh, you know what would look like a, a, a sort of a sovereign um, lever for Parliament, but would actually, in reality, never be used and would never really mean anything, and so that the, the Europeans could kind of ignore it. That's a kind of a notion that's going around today. Uh, but you know, but, but I think you'll probably have more of these uh, to see if there's any way that you can save Theresa May's deal, because the one strength uh, that Theresa May's deal has is that. It is there. It exists. And uh, it's the only deal in town right now. And if you don't want to leave without a deal, and if you don't want a second referendum, then this is probably, or some version of it, is what you've got to go for. And in terms of her own position, Dennis, just in terms of how we, we read it, she has, while all of these different ideas are being discussed, and some of them in public by members of her cabinet, you know, she's been, she's offering this binary choice. This is the deal, or if you don't vote for the deal, it's, it's no deal. Um, do, does she... Does she mean that? Does she mean that she's prepared to take the UK out of the EU without without a deal? Or does she have some fallback position, do you think, that if she loses this vote in mid-January, does she have a plan B? I think the thing about the second referendum is that nobody wants uh, to embrace it, or at least neither of the, of the main parties want to be the one to say, let's have a second referendum. They all want to be dragged to a, to a second referendum. That's true of Labour and is true of uh, Theresa May. I think she probably doesn't want a second referendum, actually. She wants her deal. But I think that if her deal doesn't get through, then Parliament will take control of the process to some extent. And they probably will have this series of votes or find a way of saying what it is the Parliament wants. And it may be that when that if her deal appears to be absolutely unsalvageable and Norway is somehow got out of the way and a managed no deal is also revealed to be an illusion and you're faced with a choice that either you do crash out without a deal on, at the end of March with all that entails or you just have to stop the clock and have another referendum then I think you might find that Parliament and even the Conservative government could go along with uh, something like that. But we're not there yet. And she would uh, certainly, Theresa May, would like to uh, ensure that we never get to that point. But certainly I think that if her deal does fall away, uh, either in January or a little after that, then I think you are left with a choice. You do crash out without a deal or you stop. And you think again. And of course, the other thing about a referendum is there's no way of knowing how it would turn out. Indeed. Um, and, and finally, Dennis, just to pick up on something you mentioned earlier, but the lack of uh, discussions uh, right now between Brussels and London, surely between now and when she comes back in January, there will be some negotiations. Or she, she looked very foolish if she comes back with one arm as long as the other, but absolutely no progress, won't she? Well, there won't be, because uh, what Theresa May did was that, you remember um, 
a week ago, it's only a week ago, uh, last Tuesday, she uh, went uh, on her little tour of Europe where she went to see Mark Rutte in The Hague and then Angela Merkel and Donald Tusk and Jean-Claude Juncker. And what she said she wanted was a two-stage process. She wanted to get some assurances in December and then to get some more in January. But when she went into the uh, the, the dinner on uh, Thursday evening at the European Council, she said, I don't want you to hold anything in reserve. I want you to give me everything. And they said, well, hold on a second. I thought you said you'd like us to keep something in reserve. No, 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 I want it all. And they said, well, OK, if that's what you want, that's what you get. But don't come looking for anything else. And so they feel as if they've given her the reassurances they're giving her. And that uh, and there's certainly there is no appetite in Brussels or in the European capitals to reopen this at all before the middle of January. So if it happens that her deal is voted down, then maybe I think you will find that there are some discussions going on. But there's certainly uh, they feel as if they're not, you know, that she herself uh, you know, cancelled her own two-stage process and decided to turn it into a one-stage process. She did all kinds of other terrible things there, like telling the 27 leaders that her MPs didn't trust them, which wasn't the best way of winning their trust uh, and confidence at the beginning of the whole thing. So it was a bit of a disaster for her uh, in terms of personal diplomacy. Okay. Listen, Dennis, thanks for all that and for all your insightful commentary on, on this story in 2018. And we'll talk again in January. Next, it's those protests in Budapest. There's things in life you just can't control, like the weather, the traffic, or the fact that spilled coffee seems to love white shirts. But it's all good, because there's something you'll always be able to control, your company's finances. SAP Concur integrates all your business's expenses, travel and invoicing in one simple solution, giving you the visibility and control you need to drive your business forward. SAP Concur. It's how the best-run businesses make their expenses run better. Learn more at concur.co.uk slash control. It's freezing in Budapest these nights, but that hasn't prevented thousands of protesters from taking to the streets of the Hungarian capital several times over the past week to voice their opposition to Viktor Orbán's government. Daniel McLaughlin is in Budapest and joins me now. Dan, what was the trigger for these protests? The trigger came last Wednesday when Parliament voted for what critics call a slave law here. Um, It it raises the the, the amount of time that uh, the amount of overtime that employers can expect from their staff to 400 hours per year from 250. And it also gives employers uh, up to three years to actually pay for that uh, for that overtime work. So. What it did, particularly interestingly, was bring together a whole range of opponents, Uh, not just the usual political opponents of Orban and not just um, uh, NGOs and civil society groups that have been very critical of him, but also workers' unions who say this is absolutely unfair, that it tips the balance of power um, uh, far too strongly in favor of the employers. Um, And so we have seen a very interesting coalition of uh, Orban's critics get together and take to the streets after that. And so are, are other issues now coming to the fore as these uh, demonstrations continue? Yeah, I mean, the, the real unifying factor, well, it's not, it's not just the slave law. The slave law has created this, uh, the, this interesting combination, as I said, of, of, of liberal critics of Orban right across to uh, far right parties and workers groups that in the past have not been critical of Orban at all. But of course, underlying this, there are lots of other uh, criticisms. 
Um, for example, in recent days, we've seen protests focus on the television headquarters, the state television headquarters in Budapest. That's because uh, es essentially state television acts as a propaganda outlet now for Orban. So people are demanding changes to the media. They're also complaining about another um, reform that was pushed through parliament last week. That's to create a new uh, administrative court system, which will be parallel to the existing system of courts. It will be under the ultimate control of the justice minister, and it will rule on um, uh, all court cases related to state activity. So it's uh, particularly potentially very sensitive issues like, like elections, like um, uh, alleged corruption in, in uh, public contracts, um, uh, like protest laws and things like this. Um, and there is a fear among critics and, and analysts of the legal system here that it will give the, the government a very dangerous level of control over the courts in Hungary. And how big are the protests, Anne? I mean, I know there was a big demonstration on Sunday night, but what kind of crowds have we seen? On Sunday night, we saw about 10,000 people, uh, maybe more than that, but around 10,000 people gather outside Parliament uh, by the Danube here in Budapest. Um, uh, that was for a, a, a protest that they dubbed a Merry Christmas, Mr. Prime Minister. And then from there, uh, several thousand of them made their way to the television headquarters that I just talked about. And they met again there last night on uh, on Monday evening. And there were about 2,000, maybe 3,000 protesters there um, lining up against uh, ranks of riot police who were guarding the building. They were singing, they were chanting, they were projecting images, mocking Orban and his allies onto the uh, onto nearby buildings. They were um, uh, giving free food and, and warm drinks out to the protesters who were there because it was about probably about minus five last night. Um, and now we wait to see what will happen next. Uh, there is some talk of another protest today, um, but people are really wondering how, how long this can continue, how long um, these quite disparate opposition groups can retain their unity, and whether they can translate the, the protests in Budapest, which is quite an anti-Orban stronghold anyway, uh, can, whether they can translate it out and move it out into the regions as well, and what the unions, if anything, can do to um, to, to to maintain this momentum and and, and potentially bring uh, new protesters on board around the country in the the days and weeks ahead. And has it been confined to Budapest so far, Dan, or is there evidence that actually this uh, movement might be spreading? Well, it's certainly been strongest in Budapest, but that's what you'd expect. There have been smaller protests uh, in other cities, cities like, like Mishkolts in the northeast and down in Seged, close to the Serbian border. There have been protests. We have also seen um, uh, reflections of this, this broad coalition, that this anti-Orban coalition that's formed. We have seen this mirrored in the regions as well. Um, but uh, certainly in smaller numbers. I mean, one crucial thing that was said yesterday from the stage at the protest in Budapest was from uh, a union leader. He said that if the president, Janos Ader, the president of Hungary, signs this so-called slave law uh, into effect um, and, and it comes into power, then the unions will call a general strike. Now, that would definitely take things to a, to a new level. That would be a, a real challenge to Orban. Uh, and then we would really see what kind of support he holds in the regions. Um, opinion polls certainly suggest that Fides, that's the that's Orban's ruling party, is by far the most popular party still all over the country. 
Um, but it definitely dominates in the regions, and certainly pro-Orban media also dominates in the regions. People out there are not necessarily getting, seeing any pictures or any reports about what's happening in Budapest. And the reports that they are reading or seeing on state television are depict, depict, depicting the uh, protesters as uh, hooligans backed by uh, foreign money, they're from pro-migration groups, and that perhaps they're coordinated and paid by George Soros, who, of course, is is um, Orban's bete noir and has been for a long time. So, um, so it's really crucial to see what happens in the regions, and, and the unions could be a crucial part in uh, in translating the opposition in Budapest into a real, uh, uh, transforming it into a real nationwide movement. And Dan, coverage of Orban in, in uh, international media, certainly in, in in Western Europe, tends to focus on the repressive measures, the clampdowns in the media, concerns over independence of the judiciary and so on. But as you just mentioned there, he's still very popular in Hungary. Why is he so popular, um, particularly, as you said, outside Budapest? He's very popular still because uh, he has managed to uh, maintain economic growth. So the economy is doing okay. Um, And this is a country that's still relatively poor. So it is absolutely vital to people, particularly out in the regions, particularly the the working class, which is still very large here, um, to make sure that they still have their jobs and that they can still get their wage at the end of the week and they can still put food on the table. So there is uh, an element of economic stability that people appreciate. um, And also a a very big factor. I mean, we're, we're, we're really becoming more and more aware of how important this is to Orban, is this domination that he has over the media. I mean, in recent weeks, something like 450 pro-Orban media outlets, that's uh, television stations, radio stations, uh, magazines, uh, local and national newspapers, all came together under the umbrella of one uh, right-wing media fund which is controlled by a very close ally of Orban. And through all these outlets all over the country, and they're particularly dominant in the regions, you get the message that Orban is the only person capable of running the country, that Fidesz is the only party capable of doing it, and that his critics are essentially um, uh, either liberal groups, as I said, funded from abroad, people backed by George Soros, people, uh, uh, groups and, and, and organizations and parties that would, as Orban puts it, flood Hungary and Europe with migrants. Um, and that would cause, as they claim, huge knock-on effects for security, for the economy and so on. So these are all the messages that people, particularly out in the regions, are getting all the time. And they tend to think that uh, essentially Orban is the safe bet. There is one other crucial element as well, and that is the uh, the opposition here is, has been extremely ineffectual for years. So the left-wing opposition, the socialists, has basically been in a constant state of collapse for about 10 years. Um, and no other parties from the left, liberal, centre um, positions have really come through to challenge Orban. The other major party that you have, which is probably the second most popular party at the moment, that's Jobbik. They've been far right for most of their existence. But now as Orban and Fidesz move further to the right, Jobbik is trying to kind of reposition itself as a conservative center-right party, Um, not with great success at the moment. Um, 
So that's the that's the real picture. And this very, very fractured political opposition is is a big part of what has allowed Orban to be so successful. A major question now about these protests is whether this fractured opposition can get together, can stay together and really mount a, a coherent challenge to Orban over the longer term. And and what are the protesters hoping to achieve? I mean, are they looking for reforms or is this a, a, a push to try to get Orban out of power? Well, when they went to the TV station on uh, Sunday evening, they tried to get inside and broadcast a list of several demands. Um, they were barred from doing that. They got into the building, but they weren't allowed to go on air. And then in the morning, Monday morning, a couple of them were, were forcibly thrown out of the building, which added to... Uh, the anger of protesters yesterday. Now, the main demands that they had were to uh, were for an end to uh, state propaganda from public media, um, for this so-called slave law on overtime to be abolished, for um, Hungary to join the EU prosecutor's office, uh, some a body that it has stayed outside of at the uh, uh, so far, and that would if Hungary was to join, it would allow outside investigation of corruption cases. Uh, of which there are very many building up as regards um, public contracts in Hungary. Um, And a fourth major demand was for uh, the independence of the court system, the judicial system here to be protected. So they are the main things, but MPs have been, uh, deputies have been quite clear in saying that their ultimate goal is the removal of the government. That's the long-term goal. Um, But initially, they would consider it a huge success if they got Orban to back down on the so-called slave law, the overtime law. At the moment, from Orbán's side, there has, been, there has been absolutely no suggestion that the government is willing to do that. Uh, as of now, it looks like the government's ready to try and sit this out, to hope that the protests will fizzle and um, the uh, opposition leaders will fall out among themselves, as they have done in the past. And also with the Christmas and New Year holidays approaching, uh, Orbán and his government are hoping that people will have other things to do rather than go out on the streets and protest. And he's been in power then since 2010. So how significant a challenge do you think this is to his authority? I mean, it strikes me that 2,000 protesters in a city the size of Budapest isn't a massive number. Is is that an indication that it is fizzling out or what do you think is likely to happen from here? Um, It's hard to tell. I mean, analysts I've spoken to today are also saying it's very hard to tell. It really does depend um, whether this uh, uh, protest movement in Budapest can, can go nationwide whether there can really be, and this is going to be, I think, one of the efforts on the parts of the on the part of the protest leaders in the the coming days to try and translate this anger in Budapest into the regions, to try and um, uh, get people out on the streets in in major towns and cities around the country, um, and then we have to really see what the president does. If the president decides to back this law, the slave law, and sign it into law. And whether and and perhaps potentially seeing it come into effect early in the new year, then will the unions go through on their threat and call a general strike? That would cause a level of disruption and a challenge to Orban from the workers and from sort of the economic side of life, if you like, in Hungary, which he hasn't seen before. So far, the workers have generally been on his side. Um, and if you were to get a coalition of all these opposition leaders from left to right, um, and the unions and civil society groups, then it would be a pretty formidable challenge to Orban. Um, We have to wait and see whether that develops in the new year. Dan, thank you. That's it for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks again to Dennis Staunton and Dan McLaughlin, and indeed to all our contributors throughout the year. 
We'll be back on January 1st. Until then, wishing all of our listeners a happy Christmas and New Year. It's goodbye for now.